Happy Black History Month to our listeners in the U.S. Uh, we commemorate this month with a special episode titled Shades of Black. Before we delve into the topic, though, it's time for an icebreaker. Yes, it is. And today's icebreaker is going to be favorite Black classics. So mm-hmm. the movies that pretty much every Black person knows um, or has heard of, at least. So I'll start with a favorite of mine, um, Love and Basketball. I actually didn't watch this movie until I was like 24. I'd always heard about it and I was like, well, it has basketball in the title. I don't really like basketball, so I'm not going to watch it. But it was so much more than that. It was about so much more than that. Um, mm-hmm. When I watched it, it just it was just like the sweet love, but it had all these issues between the couple as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I just like watching the two characters grow into their love. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it had basketball in there as well, but it wasn't the most predominant thing. I think the love they shared was, even as flawed as it was, still very sweet and a good example of at least a couple trying to uh, manifest their love over time. Yeah, I think there's still memes that come out of that movie. Um, <laughs> whenever, like, was it toxic dudes trying try to, like, you know mansplain why they act a certain way in their relationships they always have a picture of that couple mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because it was a good movie it was and Omar <laughs> yeah for me love jones another romantic film that's a good one uh it's i really like it a lot like for me i like that time period so i always like dreamed that i was like raised in the 80s and 90s minus like the the crime and the poverty but just like I like how they drive the cars that they drive the clothes that they wear the things that they do for fun like the whole fact that they were like in a poetry lounge I was like how come we don't have those things anymore yep (laughs) so like yes I like live vicariously through those characters and it's yeah it's another interesting example of black love black love ain't perfect so definitely shows that um yeah another one that i really like is what's love got to do with it it mm-hmm. had Lorenz tate um it was a musical which i enjoyed <laughs> so I every, now and then, <laughs> every now and then they would bust out and start singing but he was such a good singer i just loved it i smiled throughout the whole movie even though he was kind of the an example of a bad boyfriend or mm-hmm. just a bad lover because he got famous from his singing and then started, of course, mistreating the woman he was interacting with. And mm-hmm. that wasn't very positive. But overall, um, another classic that a lot of people have seen or have heard of before. Yeah. It sounds like um, there's like a movie with Christina Milian where she like, like where Nick Cannon is like a geek and then she fixes him up and he makes him popular and then he just forgets what she did for him and acts all bad and mean to her. And then is it like love don't cost a thing? Oh yeah. That's what it is. That's one. Mm-hmm. Did, did every movie have like love in the title? That's we, love, we love love. <laughs> <laughs> well, my movie, my last one is menace to society. And this is not a romantic film. Not at all. It's like a gangster film in Los Angeles. What I like about it is it's like, um, we get to follow these young boys from boyhood to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, we see like the circumstances that lead them into this life of violence and crime. We sort of see like 
the humanness like they're, they're not just like drug dealers and killers they have families they have aspirations they have traumas and things like that some people hate gangster films because there's like a negative um view on black communities but the issue is like when we just have gangster films but um having them i don't think in itself is bad it's like we need you know more diverse representation yeah um but yeah that was one of the films that i've watched multiple times so i'll admit i have not seen that one but i'm going to add it to my list of things to watch you must (laughs) but no that was a fun icebreaker just a good uh introduction into the topic we're going to talk about today which Mm -hmm. is shades of black and as we talk about this you'll i hope we'll hopefully our listeners will get a sense of why it's titled Shades of Black because there is no one Black experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yours is very different from mine. And just even within the movies that we talk about, we see how everyone um, lives a different Black life, quote unquote. That's a better term there. But yeah, no, it's it's an experience for sure to be Black no matter where you're living. So we can just kind of, I guess, talk about our experiences um, Mm -hmm. and then deeper into the topic as we go. Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, there is not a single Black narrative. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, for example, like for me, uh, I grew up in Harlem. This is pre-gentrification, before we had that Whole Foods on 125th, (laughs) before, like, the rent went up the way it is now. So, like, my neighborhood was very Black. Um, I went to elementary school in a Black, pretty much majority Black school. When I was young, like, from the ages of, like, infant to let's say maybe 12 mm-hmm. I didn't encounter white people unless it was like the teachers at the at the school like I didn't have to encounter white people because when I went to the store it was black people working there when I went to school the kids were black like yeah everything was just I just encountered black people of all kinds mm-hmm. and in my neighborhood in Harlem we lived with African-Americans we lived with other Senegalese immigrants other black immigrants from Jamaica, Cote d'Ivoire, Mali, Guinea, Haitians, like, yeah, so different black groups. So I never felt out of place in terms of skin color. Mm-hmm. But a little bit out of place, I guess, like, because colorism was an issue. Yeah. Like, I, am, I was darker skinned than my African-American classmates. So then, like, when I was young, I was made fun of for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, yeah, issues of colorism. And also issues of guests like the two com- like two different black communities not really understanding each other, yep. like African Americans and black immigrant communities mm-hmm. sort of having um, sort of fearing each other in a way. Like for example, my parents said that when they first came into the U.S., they came in the 1990s, and they just had seen the gangster films like Menace to Society. I don't, know, I don't know if they've seen that one, but they've seen films <laughs> similar to that. And that was their image of Black people. Like, they thought they were gangsters, drug dealers. And then they moved into Harlem at that time, and that's what they saw. So there was, they just didn't trust Black people, African-Americans. Just and like, then African-Americans... Go ahead. It just reaffirmed what they had already thought of. Exactly. Exactly. And then African-Americans were seeing the Feed the Children commercials... So they thought that like Africans were poor, lived in huts, you know. So that was their image. So like they both had these images fed to them that weren't correct. So then they didn't um, 
And they were like sort of very small opportunities for cross-cultural communication. Because, you know, Africans at the time were working all the time. Barely in the community, like my parents would be working. When they go home, they just to go home to sleep. They don't go to the park, really. They don't interact with African-Americans because of that fear. Mm-hmm. But it's, it changed because then after living in the community for like 20 plus years, we became friends with our neighbors. They became, they ventured outside of Harlem. They started to see different types of black people and they realized that, oh, it's a stereotype. And all of these people also have stereotypes of us. Mm-hmm. So... So like over time, it sort of things started to break down and the tension started to ease up. Um, and then for me, after when I left Harlem and started going to like the white parts of the city for school and having like more white friends, I started to become more aware of my blackness now because now now I'm the only black kid in the room. Mm-hmm. So then now I'm like, wait a second, there there's a thing called being black. <laughs> and there's a thing called like you know racism and microaggressions and things like that and then when you go to university you start learning all the concepts of like you know ra- racism you learn about racial capitalism now you sort of can put words these fancy words to what you've experienced yeah. so then now my blackness in university became more political you start reading the you know the political text that tells you what your black identity means in the United States. So then that was like a political time. Mm-hmm. And now today, I sort of moved a little bit away from that. And I'm starting to sort of combine my blackness with my cultural and ethnic identity. Like I don't see my blackness as being something that's divorced from being Senegalese. Mm-hmm. Like I, I see the two things now coexisting. So yeah. that's sort of the evolution of my black identity in short (laughs) it's quite interesting to hear how your surroundings kind of help you determine at that point in time what your definition of being black meant and I think Mm -hmm. for a lot of people that is the case I know it it, it was for me Mm -hmm. I think mine was just a little bit different in, in the sense that I was born back in Senegal and moved to Florence Kentucky when I was eight years old with my family and that was all white people yeah and then about a year and a half later maybe a year we moved to Cincinnati into a very black neighborhood um and so I grew up hearing like you know and in the neighborhood that we lived in just to give a bit of context it was low-income neighborhood um a lot of um poverty you know a lot a lot of what you might see in movies sometimes Mm -hmm. how black people are portrayed and I think for my immigrant parents who were just like, go to, go to school, come home, don't interact with the neighbors, you know, like be cordial so that there's mm-hmm. no issues, but just kind of stay away from them. Yeah. That was the experience that I had in my, you know, early teen years. And that was kind of like what you mentioned, that tension between African or, or Black immigrants and African-Americans living in the U.S. There's, there are stereotypes on both sides. And for me, those were pushed down from, you know, my household in terms of who to avoid and who you're allowed to hang out with. Yeah. And then as I got a little bit older, uh, went away to college at PWI, predominantly white institution. And that's when I was like, and I joined our African Students Union and I was like, I'm African. Mm-hmm. And I growing up, even when I was a little bit younger, I always said I'm African. When people ask what you are. Mm-hmm. I never said African-American. I just said I'm African or I'm Senegalese more specifically. Mm-hmm. 
when I got to school, um, my school was a maybe about 27,000 students, less than 500 Black people. But even then, I hung out with the Africans. That's where I felt more comfortable because I was perpetuating mm-hmm. this belief that I'm I'm Senegalese, I'm not African American. Um, but then, as I got into my you know adult years, well, that's right. I don't think that like we're not African American. <laughs> yeah, and, and I yeah I, I like still kind of you know I, I still say I'm Senegalese, mm-hmm. and I think we'll get to this in a little bit. I don't want to jump ahead, but in terms of my black identity. I believe like I'm Senegalese American. I think that's the more correct term now mm-hmm. just so I can be like, okay, this is what I am. This is my identity. And this is what I've grown into based on my experiences. But I will say that um, the term African-American has evolved mm-hmm. for me specifically. Um, but that tension has always been there in terms of how black people in the U S perceive me as an African mm-hmm. and how I you know, have have learned to correctly, um, you know, massage those relationships. So I'm not perpetuating the same stereotypes that were pushed down on me by my, you know, family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that made sense at all, but no, it did. It did. Yeah. And that's, in, yeah, I think college definitely for a lot of folks, we all had an identity crisis in college, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially those of us that went to pride predominantly white institutions, PWIs. Yep. It's because now you look like you go into your classroom and you're the only person who looks like you. When you when it's time to contribute and participate in the classroom, you're the only one who has to represent an entire race of folks. So then it just be, so then it just by force becomes political. Like your very your body in these institutions is politicized. Mm-hmm. So then your blackness is a political um, identity by force mm-hmm. because you don't even want it. Like I didn't go into college like I didn't go into university with the expectation that I would have to represent every single black person (laughs) who wasn't in the room with me and especially as someone who is not African-American that's something I became came to realize I'm like I feel even worse because like I can't bring in the African-American perspective in these discussions because I'm just black but Mm -hmm. I have a whole nother um, ethnic cultural identity that influenced how I lived here in the U.S. and how I experienced things here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Right. So then when we say African-Americans, we have to be mindful that that is a group of people who has a very unique experience. And that if we want to call ourselves African-Americans, are we erasing that identity that is different? Absolutely. Um, and I think that black is like a huge umbrella that includes a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. African American is definitely underneath that umbrella. The way that Senegalese American is, the way ja- you know Jamaican American is, what have you. You make such a good point about the fact that, like us being, like me and you specifically. I don't want to speak on behalf of everybody, mm-hmm. but being Senegalese immigrants living in the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, we do have a very different experience than an African American who was born in the U.S., their parents were their grandparents, like generations. Mm-hmm. And that for a long time, I struggled with that because I felt like I was being a hypocrite by not saying I was African-American. Um, and I couldn't I couldn't pinpoint if the reason why I didn't want to say that was because I had, like, internal, I, I don't, I mean, it's not racism, but, like, whatever, that like, grudge I was holding against mm-hmm. African-Americans. Or 
I just couldn't articulate it the way you just did. Because I think the way you just did, like, kind of came full circle for me where I was like, okay, the reason why I wasn't comfortable saying I'm African-American is because I truly couldn't appreciate everything that they had, like, their experience compared to mine. Mm-hmm. Like, when I went home, you know, even, like, something is, I'm going to give a trivial example, like, Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. We cooked the turkey Senegalese style. We didn't yeah. know the color green. We, mm-hmm. you know, like the 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 meal itself was very Senegalese, even though mm-hmm. we were celebrating quote unquote the same, you know, the same event as a black family who might cook their meals like very specific to their culture. Mm-hmm. I think we almost need to just kind of put it on the table that African American has a different culture than. Mm-hmm. African- and not feel so guilty about it because it is exactly yeah then learn like this is just need to be more dialogue like more cross-cultural dialogue like and it's happening now with social media where now we're able to sort of we have like black twitter that sort of like creates a whole like um safe space for black folks to engage with each other online Mm -hmm. and like some of the memes make sense i'm like i'm not african-american but i can relate to yes. some of these 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 memes, some of these hashtags. So being black in the United States definitely is a identifier that links us with other black people mm-hmm. in the US. So there are some things that we all share. But then there are some histories, mm-hmm. legacies that do not belong to us. Maybe we can share them if African Americans want to share them with us but they don't they don't i guess it's not an issue of sharing is an issue of who owns it who owns it yeah yeah so right now you know things are much more fluid like black people are wearing wax print they're listening to afro beats where let's you know we've always enjoyed hip-hop yeah. um black music black culture basically black things so we've always dabbled in each other's cultures but when it yep. comes to ownership of that culture and management of that culture, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, that's where we should sort of draw the lines. Yeah. I mean, even our icebreaker, all the classics we listed, they're mm-hmm. African-American classics. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right. The dialogue is starting to be there in that social media is helping with the cultural exchange. Um, there's a lot of things like I learned from the Shade Room <laughs> that... <laughs> maybe I wouldn't have known if that, that um, platform wasn't there for us to get to know each other a little better. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, that discrepancy, or I guess that tension, and I, I just want to kind of dissect it a little bit in my head because mm-hmm. I, I've come across it so much where like the perception of Africans from the African-American per, um, lens or viewpoint was, you know, we feel entitled, we come here and like working so hard. So like, if I think about like you, the way your parents would work, come home, my mm-hmm. parents did the exact same thing. There was no interest in becoming a part of the community by going to events and stuff like that. So I guess the attitude could have been perceived as like you're um, snickety or you think you're better. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, Africans thinking African-Americans are, um, not maybe because of all the opportunities that are perceived to be in the U.S. Mm-hmm. already that's associated with African Americans, Africans tended to think that they weren't capitalizing on that or they weren't mm-hmm. taking advantage 
of it. They were being lazy. Exactly. So types mm-hmm. always needed to be broken down and they still need to be break, broken down. Mm-hmm. So we can truly understand each other's struggles because mm-hmm. rooted in all this blackness is generation and generations of struggles. Yeah. And I think that's what makes even like the black political identity even more nuanced than we think. Like we think that, oh, when it comes to oppression, all black people, that's what unites us all. We're all suffer from racism. Um, when it's time to fight against racism, we should all come together because we all have the same stake mm-hmm. in an anti-racist society that we all have um, the same things that we want to fix in this um, racist society, which is not always the case. It's like what you just said, how lots of Senegalese people don't know black history. No. They just, they, lots of Senegalese people are Trump supporters because that, what, what, you know, what Trump supporters believe that, oh, if you just pick yourself off from your bootstraps and you work hard, you can have everything you want. Look at me. I came to the U.S. with only mm-hmm. $10 in my pocket. And now I have a house in Senegal, which mm-hmm. that logic doesn't even make sense. You didn't even build your wealth here in the U.S. You built it overseas, which get, shows your privilege, right? Because mm-hmm. African-Americans don't have that privilege to have such a connection to their homeland where they can build their wealth outside of the United States. Mm-hmm. Right? So generations of compounded inequity here, like the inequity, the struggles, racism, like generations of it just stacked up on top of each other has an effect <laughs> on a community's, you know, ability to succeed or to follow this American dream. And the fact that lots of African-Americans have succeeded given the conditions in this country is remarkable. Yes. Right? So then we come thinking that everyone, like the, like the, like the, the footing is equal for everyone when it's not. Where even I think we have an advantage over African-Americans in some sense because we don't have that legacy Mm-hmm. of racism on us we're, we're sort of coming we, we come in and we encounter racism but it's not a legacy of racism we do have a legacy of colonialism but we're not staying back in our home like the people back home are dealing with that yep so i don't it's know a- if i'm framing this right like people who, who study this can probably say this much better than i am but that's just something to consider and when it's time for us to be, like, when it's time to, uh, for us to fight for freedom here in this country, we need to remember that if it wasn't for African Americans, we wouldn't even be here right now. Yep. Right? If there was no civil rights movement, do you think the United States would be ready for black immigrants? I don't think so. No, not at all. So, yeah, that's something we need to always remember. Like, I don't know, I feel like in terms of, like, black freedom in this country, when it's time for, for it to be led, we should center the voices of African-Americans and other black groups should just like, they, their voices should be heard, but they shouldn't be centered. And many people are going to be angry about this, what I'm saying, but that's how I feel. You know, and, and I, I mean, you're entitled to have that feeling. And I think mm-hmm. the way you explained it, for me, like, I, I agree because we cannot speak on behalf. Like the example you gave earlier, when we're in a classroom and we are the black voice, we are not, the, we, we don't just stop at being the black voice. Like you are the Senegalese voice because that's what you can speak on. Maybe you can speak about your upbringing in Harlem if there's any tie to that. But mm-hmm. it's very like the things that we can talk about based on our identity, they do have a fence around it. It's not like we can just speak on everything and, and yeah. speak on behalf of 
everyone either because it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. It is. And that difference is what I guess society just doesn't accept or like because when people are so different, so nuanced, it's really, it's, it becomes harder to oppress them. Mm-hmm. Yep. But when, yeah, when you can lump a whole bunch of people and and like see them in one way, then it's easier for the the sort of the race racist institutions to work. So like, oh, all black people are just violent yeah. and lazy or whatever racist yeah. thing people say these days. Yep. But there's all shades of black, right? All shades of black, and we could go on and on about this, but. I think um, I like the the top the point you made. Excuse me about the dialogue. I think that's mm-hmm. one aspect, and I think that's where we should close the ep- the episode on is how can we one further this discussion because I think it's good that we're talking about it mm-hmm. and take additional steps to bridge that gap between the different uh, black identities that might be out there, mm-hmm. and maybe through this dialogue. Some, I mean, that can really get the ball rolling. But I think there's now with the with social media and the reach that people have I think there's a lot more that could be done definitely like these dialogues are happening like when you're on social media and you're snapping your trip while you're in Ghana or Nigeria Senegal wherever and then your African-American friends or your Jamaican friends see that like now they're seeing your homeland through your lens not through feed the children yes or some white girl who's doing Peace Corps lens it's your <laughs> Your story, your you know, your perspective. Yep. Same thing with like I African Americans like making their own films now that are like much more dynamic and not just the gangster films that were being pushed in the nineties and eighties, like creating their own content. Mm-hmm. Social media definitely has an important role to play there. And the yeah, takeaway from that is like the story has to be told from the horse's mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, accurate. Yeah, like these individual narratives are important. Like we don't always have to like tell like it doesn't have to be like a huge like breakthrough movie or like some breakthrough cultural thing in mm-hmm. pop culture for us to change our mindsets. Like just talking with your friends or with your family about these things um can definitely change how we view each other in the black community. Yeah. And talking um on our Instagram page as well. Mm-hmm. Yoko podcast uh double underscore (laughs) we want to keep this conversation going and get your guys's thoughts as well because as our listeners i'm sure you've had your you know share of experiences um and we'd love to hear that we want to know how do you identify as black like where do you put yourself Mm -hmm. in terms of the the global um, view of blackness because it's huge and there's so many uh different experiences out there I'm a new story, I'm a new